Good. Let it, let's get started here. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. I know. So in many ways, yeah. Lord God, we are grateful to you for this day that you have given to us. We are grateful for the chance to gather together into your assembly with your people and to praise and magnify your name. And we pray, Lord, that during this time that we are together, we pray that you would lift up our hearts to the heavenly places where Christ is seated, where he intercedes on our behalf. We pray that you would build us up, encourage us, and draw us unto yourself. We pray that even this particular hour would be useful in preparing us for the time of worship to come. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, it's good to be back with you again. Uh, This week, we are... Oh, it's hitting my jacket. Sorry about that. I got you at the deer ground. Time to get rid of the tie. All right, we are continuing uh, our short um, uh, history on OPC Church history, Uh, and I say that because um, we are going to be breaking for Sunday School the last week in July. Actually, I think it's the 23rd is the last week that we'll be in here, and then from that point until uh, Labor Day, we will not have Sunday School. Um, And so we're trying to keep this within that time frame. So it is a short survey of church history. And uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we ended the class thinking about the values of the Reformation, values of Presbyterianism. If you'll recall, you know, we made uh, some very tight connections between uh, what was going on in the Reformation in Europe and that which was happening in Scotland and uh, the Presbyterian Church that came to America uh, pretty much came, when it came, it came wholesale uh, to America. So the values that we talked about, some things that we briefly alluded to, things like, uh, what, what, anyone remember some of the things we talked about? <laughs> this is good. Start over again. Yeah, start over again. The, what'd you say? Sola yeah, the five solas, you know, sola everything. I like that. You know, in uh, uh, the sovereignty of God, uh, Calvinism, Westminster standards, and the confessions of the church. These things are values of the church. Uh, church polity, the way um, re- reformed folk worship uh, becomes uh, very significant. And the point that I was making is that there's not a huge difference between these two particular movements of what's uh, going on in the Reformed Church and Presbyterianism, either historically or theologically. They're not, uh, there's not a huge, great divide between them. Uh, and so we kind of ended class wrapping up in the early 1700s. And so today, we've got a little bit of ground to cover. Um, we're going to move from the early 1700s towards roughly the late 1800s and the early 1900s. I'm not actually, I'm going to actually skip that portion of history. Again, we've got a a short amount of time that's not really within the purview of this class to to go over everything. Uh, But because of time constraints, we really need to move forward to understand the immediate context 
surrounding the OPC split from the PCUSA. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, now, just for fun, you all know that the, uh, or at least I told you at least once or twice, uh, <laughs> that the uh, OPC was formed in 1936. Uh, but did you know that originally it did not have the name the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Does anyone know what the original name was? Presbyterian Yeah, it was the Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, we weren't able to keep that name uh, because the PCUSA uh, basically wanted to sue us for it. It was too close to the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America to call it the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, and I think, if I recall correctly, uh, the OPC decided it didn't have the resources to fight over the name that, after all, this was happening during the time of the Great Depression, uh, if you keep that in mind. And so they had something like, John, I forget the, uh, the full story here, but there were like 11 other names offered up, one of which was pretty wild. Do you remember it? Either of you guys? It made it, made it through the second round of <laughs> Well, the, it was like the true Presbyterian Church of of the world. Of the world. <laughs> was that in John's motion? No, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but uh, so the reason I'm I'm bringing up the doesn't the, that make the OPC sound so much better? <laughs> very humble, very humble. I think. So. Um, you know, we weren't able to keep that name, and I think that that is all right, but I think it raises a question, actually, um, and a good question for us to think about for a moment, but why did this new denomination at first try to name themselves the Presbyterian Church of America? Okay, It's a worthwhile question, because that's the main uh, that was the main goal initially to do this. And it, I think it gets back to what we discussed already, that they were trying to establish a connection between this new denomination and the values and heritage that American Presbyterianism had always held to in the past. Those things we talked about two weeks ago, the five solas, Calvinism, and so on and so forth. Uh, they were trying to maintain a connection to that particular spiritual heritage. Uh, that's what the OPC was trying to communicate with its name, PCA, that they were committed to regaining the lost values of the Presbyterian Church. And uh, when I say that sentence, it's a loaded sentence, right? Um, that, that what, uh, and that's what we're going to be trying to understand uh, how is it that the American Presbyterian Church had a particular set of values and at some point lost them? How did that particular uh, issue transpire? How did they lose the values of American Presbyterianism? And what was the catalyst that made, that, uh, made it necessary to seek to regain it? Um, and this is where... I wrestled with this this week, trying to explain it, and I, and I don't think I can answer that question without getting a little philosophical with you all. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the long and the short answer is one of the issues that's happening 
uh, in the church at this time is the influence of modernity. The influence of modernity in the church. And I'm going to spend some time on this. I'm going to try to do my best. This is where you wrestle with because this is a huge philosophical movement with great big categories and we've got a limited time and you know, dozens of years of church history to cover. So I'm, I'm going to do my best here. So just try to hang with me, try to bear with me, and I'll hopefully give you some answers. The, this, the, the focus of the class today is especially focusing on what happened in the church. What, why did you have a, a particular set of values in the Presbyterian church that gets lost and in the coming back into the OPC, you're trying to regain the values that were originally lost. Okay, that's what this is about. This this discourse. So, um, so I think it's helpful if we answer the question: What is modernity? What is modernity? Anyone want to take a stab at this? Ernest, just remember: Fools tread where angels fear to go. I <laughs> reach. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kidding. Do, do you, you want to take a guess, though? Well, I was going to, you know, throw out a thought, you know, trampoline. Anyway, um, I just forgot. That's, okay. That's all right. No, I'm sorry. That was my fault. I was picking on you. Shane, yep. you're saying modernity. Mm-hmm. Do you mean modernism? That's, it's, uh, are you making a distinction? I'm actually starting with the philosophy of modernity first. Modernism is, I'm not making a, a strong distinction between the two. I know what you're getting at, but I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Ernest? I remember, it was based on what John was talking about, that um, the, the worldly view of what is relevant okay. versus what is true. Yeah, Okay. Um, it, it, it does, you're starting to strike at it. it it's built in this um, idea of how do we know what is true? Okay, that's the question modernity seeks to answer. So modernity is a philosophy that seeks to answer the question, what is the foundation of knowledge? How do we know what is true? How do we know anything? And how can you and I know uh, truth in this world? And what is the basis upon which all knowledge is built? In other words, how can you and I understand and know the world around us? How can we know anything around us? What is the starting place for how we know? Um, another word for this is epistemology. That's the precise discipline of the, the study of how we know things. Uh, well, what modernity taught in essence in relation to this question and still teaches uh, is that to understand the world around us, we have to begin with understanding ourselves, our own experiences, our own understanding of this world. We begin by looking inwardly to ourselves. I, and I, I will explain that. Uh, some of you who are familiar with modernity might think that's a jump. But uh, if you think of the famous saying by Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, okay? This is arguably the starting point of, the, of, of modernity. Uh, but Descartes means something by this. Uh, it's not just a random statement. 
Uh, Descartes is asking himself the question, how can I know anything exists in this world? How can I truly know truth? How can I find truth? What is the surest foundation upon which all other knowledge can be built? What's the starting place? That's what that, that response, that answer is getting at. Uh, and he answers that question basically, well, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I am a thinking, rational being. And at the very least, if I can't know that anything else in the world is true, I know that I exist. Okay? That's how he comes to this final statement. If I know nothing else, I know that I uh, am a thinking, rational being and that I ex exist. I think, therefore, I am. And, all I can, and, and I can, therefore, go from this starting place and build a philosophy on this foundation which explains the universe to me. And all I have to do is begin with myself, my own mind, and my own experience of reality, okay? I know that I am a thinking, rational person who can determine what is true and what is not without any help outside of myself. Um, interestingly, uh, throughout Descartes, I, I want you to see this is a, a significant shift from the past, and we'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but um, what's interesting about this shift in particular is that after starting with himself, he actually reasons himself to the existence of God, okay? That God does exist, and we'll, we'll come back later to that if it matters, but um, as, is everyone generally tracking with me so far? Okay, good. Um, again, I know this is a bit heady and a big topic, but you really have to understand the modernity to understand what Machen and these other ministers and elders are reacting against in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, Machen especially reacted strongly against this concept of modernity because it uh, is actually completely opposed to the Christian understanding of the world, how the Christian understands the world. Uh, in, in Christianity, the way we know anything, or epistemologically, the way that we know anything is by first knowing who and what we are. That's the starting place for the Christians uh, uh, answering the question, how we know. We know things based on who and what we are. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to throw another big 10 cent word at you, dollar word at you. Uh, and the, the word is ontology. Uh, in other words, ontology leads to epistemology. Ontology is the science of being. Okay? Uh, before we can answer the question how we know, we have to first establish the answer to the question of what are we in our beings? Because we learn according to our beings. That's the basic premise here. So, for example, a bird learns to fly because it was born to be something specific. Namely, it was born to be a bird that soars. And so it will learn certain things in accordance to its being and its nature. So Christianity has, has started with the question, who are we and, uh, and um, what are we? And according to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 teaches us what? What are we and who are we? That's the word I was looking for. We are creatures. We are creatures. We, we look at nature, we look around the world, and we recognize that in our very being, we are creatures created by a God we are therefore accountable to, okay? 
Nature screams to this, or screams this at us. Our conscience teaches us the morals that are written in our heart uh, get us to this same conclusion. So just in this one point, the fact that we are creatures, when we begin to ask how can we know anything or what can we know, we must start with God, a reality that is outside of ourselves with a God who is very different from us. You know, l- let, me, let me put it to you like this. Knowing that there is a God influences and affects every single piece of information you interact with from that point on, right? Okay? Um, we start with this reality that comes to us from outside of ourselves, outside of our subjective experiences, and as you look for the place where all knowledge begins, Christianity says it begins with the fact that there is a God, not my experience of God, but that there is a God, period. Not in my mind, but outside of myself. In fact, this, this is uh, closer uh, to what the ancients believed, the Greeks and um, Platonists and so on believe this as well, that knowledge starts outside of ourselves, um, and I'm not getting into that. It's not within our purview, but it's an interesting, or it's significant in the history of the world that this shift is taking place. So, so we begin with God, who created us as creatures, which means, again, we, we've had this conversation already many times in this class that uh, we can't know things absolutely. To be created means that you are limited, that you are finite, that there's boundaries to our knowledge. Uh, we can't know things absolutely like God does. We, again, we talked about how we are measurable and there are boundaries to being measurable, which is very different from what and who God is, uh, who knows no boundaries. Uh, who is infinite in his being. We can't know things the way God knows things. There is a difference between the creator and the creature. Uh, We can't even know things exhaustively. So, again, I hope I'm not losing you in the sauce, but the, the main point I'm trying to make is Descartes is doing something different from Christianity. Okay? Uh, Descartes says, my, ma- my mind is the foundation for understanding everything. Everything is, uh, uh, in existence can be understood by starting with myself. I even start in my mind to reason my way to the existence of God rather than starting with the existence of God. See the difference? Okay. But Christianity says, no, the foundation of all knowledge is God. Without God... Descartes, you wouldn't even have a mind by which to acquire knowledge. And more than this, Descartes is looking for an absolute foundation of knowledge. Um, We don't talk about this a whole lot, but uh, there is a sense where Descartes is looking to have the kind of knowledge that God alone can have, that inexhaustible, absolute, pure, and certain knowledge, which is just not the way that we are created or how we are to understand this world. Uh, We're given reason, um, which uh, eliminates the ability, or or, or there are limits to what our reason can even reach to. Um, I'll give you an example of this, um, how we know things. So for example, 
you walk into the kitchen and the, the water in your sink is running and the window is open and the plant that was sitting over the window is on the floor. You weren't there. You cannot know exhaustively what happened because you were not there to witness it. But you can reason to it. You can get a sense of what happened uh, in, in understanding that, well, most likely something knocked the plant over or the wind blew, wind blew the plant over, turned on the water fountain as it, or turned on the water as it fell to the, the ground. There's a distinction there. And Descartes trying to go for the absolute knowledge, the hidden secret knowledge in some ways. I, I don't know if that's relevant or not. I think I just went on a tangent and might pay for it later. But um, <laughs> Christianity actually argues that it's impossible to know things absolutely, okay, because we are limited. Uh, we can know things truly, but we cannot know them exhaustively or empirically. And so, uh, and so we can know because God has revealed himself in creation. That's one of the reasons we can know anything is because God is revealing himself. And he reveals himself in two ways. He reveals himself in creation and in the word, in the word of God. God reveals to us what man is to, in the scriptures especially, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Okay. So, Again, and I, I'm starting to repeat myself, but it's because I really want you to understand this distinction. The Christian foundation for knowledge is not grounded in ourselves and our own experiences first and foremost, okay? But in an objective truth outside of ourselves. So I'll give you an example of this. Christianity, in fact, rises and falls on the truth that Jesus Christ was a historical person, and not just a historical person, but historically was crucified by the Romans and died at their hands and historically was risen from the dead. Okay? Christianity rises and falls on that. Okay? Uh, if, if this is a false history, if it can be proven wrong, then Christianity is false. Uh, it doesn't matter what we think about that truth or how we feel about it or, you know, the, the, the common, <laughs> it's an old hymn. Hopefully you haven't sung it in a very long time, but you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. No, you ask me how I know he lives because it happened in history. Okay. Uh, it, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. You are, in, you are being in, you are being exposed to and confronted with this truth of a historical Jesus and a historical death and resurrection, that's, those are the claims Christianity makes upon you to deal with. Uh, either it is not true or it is based on historical realities. Does everyone understand what I'm saying at this particular point here? It's truth. Jim. The term moral relativism comes in with modernity. This yes. is subjective, it's yes. based on your experience, and your truth is different than someone else's, and like you say, that's a real stack to the history of not just the church, but yeah. the truth is objective because it's outside yourself, you right. find it, and you might miss it, but, it, but yeah, moral relativism is a term that uh, I think we all are familiar with now, and that's, yeah. that's 
That, that's exactly right. This is so moral relativism comes into play a little bit later in the history of the church, but that is this is this is the seedbed for that fruit. I like how you put it. Moral relativism that you all live in and breathe today, uh, maybe without even realizing it. Hopefully, you do. Is the fruit of of modernity of of starting with your own experience. Maybe just add one more thing. Just historically, you said it began in the twenties. Mm-hmm. Around the turn of the century, the Industrial Revolution, it's kind of our Tower of Babel moment in the United States. Man was improving. Utopian societies were being set up. Kellogg's setting up a sanatorium. We, we could map for health and wealth and mindfulness and so on. And then World War I happened. And all of a sudden, we realized who we were again. And it, and it threw all the models off. And that's the, the, the yeah. out of the ashes of World War I. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, there. I'll come back to that. <laughs> All right. I I still do have a lot to go through. So, are these questions or? No, one. You sure? Okay. Sorry, I don't. Um, so, so the question that I'm I'm giving you the foundation of the question of what is modernity, and the question that we started it with is how is modernity this philosophy about how we know things and experientially instead of objectively outside of ourselves, how is modernity affecting the church, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s? Um, you can go to places like if you look at B.B. Uh, Warfield's writings, B.B. Warfield is dealing with this explicitly in many, many of his writings. He's answering questions uh, that are, are beginning to rise up in the church related to uh, how do we know what comes from God? Uh, re- revelation and inspiration, um, for example. And, and I'm not, I can't get into all of that, but my point is it's a movement that is beginning to grow in the church and it's beginning to be addressed well before Machen even steps onto uh, the page. Johnny? The higher criticism? Yes. This is related to higher criticism. Because of science now and then we're done. Look at what we think it is now. Yes, because the sciences, the definition for science now has shifted to that absolute knowledge that I'm talking about, right? This is that premise in uh, modernity that we, we can't know anything unless we know it in an absolutized sense. Uh, we cannot reason to something. We have to know it in the absolute, perfect, fullest extent. And it begins to affect the sciences uh, and every form of knowledge, every discipline of knowledge is being impacted by this, including uh, things like how we understand the scriptures, how do we get the scriptures, where do they come from, um, you know, and, and higher criticism begins feeding into that. So I, I told you these things are now, they're in the general, it's like it's in the air they breathe, it's in the, it's in the water, it's everywhere around you that they're dealing with it. And, and Machen is not the first person to deal with it, but Machen does begin addressing the subject of modernity as it is affecting Christianity in modernism. Um, and he writes this book called Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, by the way, I really highly recommend this book. Um, it was published in 1923. Uh, it's 100 years old, but it, if you read it today, I can guarantee you it sounds like it was written in the last 10 years. Okay? There is something 
I don't want to say timeless, but there's something that he gets at, the core of what has affected the church for the last century very, very well, very precisely. Um, it's very readable as well. Uh, many of the issues he describes in it, you will recognize as struggles in the church today. So I highly recommend this. But one of the things that Machen focuses in on this book is showing how modernity is not only built on a different philosophy from Christianity, but it becomes a different religion altogether and grows out of this philosophy that I'm expressing to you right now. This is the main issue facing, I'm going to say the Presbyterian church in the early 20th century, but it's also affecting pretty much the church in general in America and in Europe in the, in the early 20th century. And the point is that Christianity is not the same thing as modernity or modernism. And yet during this time, those two things are being conflated. They're being brought together and described as the same way. Uh, and the church is starting to be influenced heavily by modernity in its theology, which is problematic, and I'll explain that. Uh, so what are some of the issues that begin to rise in the church because of modernity? How is this bearing its fruit in the church? How is this showing up? One of the main issues when we, uh, where we can see modernity affecting the American Presbyterian Church is in uh, what becomes a cry for unity, a cry for unity. And I'm only going to focus on this one issue of how modernity affects the American Presbyterian Church. There are lots of ways uh, that is affecting the church. I just frankly don't have time. There are dozens of ways. Uh, and, um, you know, just a couple of these we've already kind of touched on. Higher criticism uh, is on the rise. Uh, a sudden disbelief or a rise in disbelief regarding the supernatural um, changing the doctrines of the church. One of the biggest uh, helps that Machen makes is he's, he talks about how the church has redefined Christian terms that have been used throughout to, and understood in one way throughout the centuries, and now they're being made to say something other than what they have always classically uh, been told. Uh, the doctrines of inspiration being disregarded, most of which, again, Machen is working out more fully in Christianity and liberalism. That's a very thorough work, but, okay, so um, earlier you heard modernity begins with the knowledge of the self, and everything is filtered through how we perceive, and especially how we experience this world. So what does that do to how we understand God? Again, yes, uh, in this mindset of Descartes, he reasoned his way to the existence of God. But if experience is the starting point, then religion becomes nothing more than a way to speak about your own experience of God. Okay? This is different than classic Christianity that says we are talking about the God who is, and you are being confronted with the truths of who he is and what that means for you. Now you're beginning with your own experience of who God is. Which means you're beginning to put your own personal experience of God on equal planes with anyone else who has a claim to an experience with God, regardless of how radically different it is from you. So 
you come to church and we're just talking about our personal experience with God. You are no longer talking about an objective reality, a historical death, burial, and resurrection, but our experience of hearing, uh, hearing these quote-unquote truths, which is actually happening, or which actually happened in history, suddenly doesn't matter. What matters is how do you feel about it or experience it, okay? Um, one of my, I think one of the clearest ways, the clearest historical answer to show that this, this shift uh, is taking place is that in the universities, uh, prior to the late 1800s, there was a theology department. That was its name. And it becomes something else. Does anyone know what it becomes? The religion department. Significant difference. Don't think words, words matter and what they mean matters. What the schools are saying by shifting from the theology department to the religious department is that theology is the study of objective truth in a God who is there. Religion is the study of man's understanding of God. Okay? Uh, we are no longer have access to any absolute true knowledge of God anymore. We can only talk about our own experiences of him. Um, whether that is from a Baptist perspective, a Buddhist perspective, or Christian perspective, or a, a you know, Presbyterian perspective, they are your perspective. They're not absolute truth. You're not actually arguing about dis true distinctions. Um, that's the shift that's beginning to take place late 1800s, early 1900s, from the true and sure knowledge of God to only our experience of him. And this is Again, as I said, this is affecting churches everywhere. And if, now, now I'm giving you the premise here, that this is what's going on. And so if religion is only about our experience of God and not what God speaks and reveals about himself to us, what's that doing? It's saying theological distinctions don't really matter anymore. Okay? What makes Baptists and Presbyterians and Roman Catholics and Buddhists, different, is no longer important. Our creeds and confessions are no longer what we confess because God reveals himself to us in the scriptures and in a particular way, but they are our creeds and confessions because they are our expression of our own experiences. And at the bottom line, what, what this is arguing, if that is true, if all of religion gets at the same thing, your experience of your personal experience of God, then there is no good reason to be divided from other denominations and expressions of faith. Uh, we should join hands with Lutherans and Baptists and Buddhists, and our missionary endeavors begin to change. Uh, and they will look more like going into the jungle to pagans and telling them how they're doing a good job, what they get right instead and, and trying to learn from them instead of confronting them with the historical reality of Christ and him crucified for sinners and the need of the gospel for all who do not believe, all who do not uh, know him. And that is exactly what you begin to see happening in the works of the mission field. So for example, uh, one of the missionaries uh, going out is Pearl Buck. Are you familiar with this name? Okay, Pearl Buck begins talking about 
you know, Jesus and adding Jesus to the pantheon of gods as she goes out uh, and talking to others. This is someone, she's a Presbyterian missionary. Um, and so modernity is pushing, what, what is beginning to take place is you're going to begin seeing a push for a false sense of unity, uniting churches in their experience of God. Now, again, as Jim actually pointed out here earlier, this philosophy, it's not just Philosophy doesn't happen in a vacuum either. We talk about history doesn't happen and movements don't happen in a vacuum. Philosophy isn't either. Ideas are always attached to real life moments. And historically speaking, there's a political push for unity going on as well after the aftermath of World War I. Okay? Uh, war aftermath often acts as a conduit for false unity. Okay? Uh, there is, there was a push, so for example, after the Civil War, within the PCUSA, if you look at that chart that I gave you a couple weeks ago, um, you'll notice that there was a church split that goes through the Civil War, and after the Civil War, those two branches of the PCUSA come back together. Uh, and interesting, this divide between uh, new school and old school, something, again, I can't get into, but basically uh, liberal theologians or men who bought into the philosophy of modernity as the underpinnings of religion are allowed back into the Presbyterian church again for the sake of unity. And this is arguably an event that leads to the downfall of the American Presbyterian church uh, tradition in the 1920s and 30s. But, but back to World War I. In World War I, Anywhere from 15 to 65 million people are dead. Uh, the numbers vary that radically. Uh, and America, like much of the world, no longer wants to see any more fighting. Enough people have died. We don't need to fight anymore. And so uh, calls for unnecessary fighting and division begin to go out. And there is this general spirit, a general desire in America to unite under the mantra, you may have heard this, Brotherhood of man, fatherhood of God. Okay? That's, that's where the general American church is heading. And this is the, because that's the broadest possible terms of unity, right? God is our father, whatever your expression of who that God is, an understanding of who that God is. And we are brothers together. Even if we're not brothers in Christ, we're brothers as children of Adam. You, you cannot have a more wide statement than this uh, that is seeking to draw everyone into it in some sort of agreement. That's the context. That's the, the context for the split of the OPC from the PCUSA. There's a spirit in America of uniting every religion together and all denominations together regardless of the theological distinctions. Uh, and this is, this is the spirit in the PCUSA at this time. So, um, in 1920, uh, I'm, I'm going to flesh out for you historically this thought. Um, what you have is something that comes forward before the PCUSA called the Philadelphia Plan. And the Philadelphia Plan proposes to the PCUSA along with 18 other denominations. And these other denominations are not all Presbyterian. Okay? that hope to unite all of these denominations together in their religious experiences. 
okay? To become one unified body. Then again, you have uh, something take place in 1923 called the Auburn Affirmation. And we're going to get into that more next week as we talk about Machen and the conservative movement out of the PCUSA. But, but the burning question is, amidst this American desire in Presbyterians to unite for the sake of unity, is what is happening to the spirit of the American Presbyterian Church? What is happening to those values of the American Presbyterian Church? More importantly, and actually, what is driving Machen and the early founders of the OPC? What is happening to the gospel if we concede these points? What does the gospel even mean if he is equal to Buddha or Muhammad or, or, or missions has changed altogether that people are not being confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and its truth? What does it mean? What happens to the church? What happens to important theological distinctions like justification by faith in Christ alone? That is a one-word difference from Roman, Catholic, or Roman Catholics. What happens to the bold preaching of the gospel? And so you see in, in, in this cry, and, and Machen will talk about a, a false sense of unity. Not only are the values of the American Presbyterian Church being lost, which is one of the things this class, the, the main thing this class is talking about, but the gospel itself it is starting to falter. Not that the gospel itself is faltering, but how it is being preached and proclaimed and sent out into the nations. Churches are uniting in things that are not really of significant value. But as is always the case, things are not completely lost yet. Uh, there is still a minority of pastors and elders that believe the theological distinctions are important and are important enough to divide over. And not to divide for the sake of division, but for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel going forth. If you're going to divide a denomination, don't let it be over something like head coverings or psalm singing, but about the gospel. And this is what leads initially or eventually to the formation of the OPC. I'm going to stop at this point. Sorry, guys, there's only a couple of minutes, but do you have questions or comments? I saw a hand earlier. Beth? I just have a comment. Like, when people start going about, well, it's like what I think and how I feel about stuff, you're really turning yourself into your own God. I mean, you're no longer, because it's what's important to you and how you think about it. Yeah, a, a big question for Presbyterianism uh, has always been related to worship, for example. And what drives our worship here is, what is it that God requires? That's the starting place. That's the question. What is it that God wants to see? Not what, what do you feel about it? What does he demand of us as we gather in his presence? Chris? Question. Um, the idea of what is truth you said objective truth is it is it an oxymoron to say subjective truth is that is that an actual thing <laughs> 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 
I think a truth is objective truth. Yeah. Like, well, the, the problem is, Chris, that so many people have bought into the argument that there is no... So today, today the, there's been a shift where the language used in, in philosophical circles is there's no meta-narrative. There's no main uh, historical narrative. Everyone has their own story, and their own story can be true to themselves. And in their own context. But you, looking at that same experience, because you're a different person, can have a different experience of the same truth. So I, I agree with you that there's, a, there's an inherent, because at some point you have truths that collide. Uh, 2 plus 2 is 4, 2 plus 2 is 5, uh, and they, they cannot mean the same thing. It, it becomes illogical. Um, but the, the world that we live in now is, is um, established in uh, this idea of different stories having equal amounts of truth. So, um, I, sorry, I just uh, a couple years ago, there was a, a musical called Wicked, and I, I paid a lot of attention when this one came out because it is telling the story of the Wizard of Oz from the perspective of the witch who is seen as quote-unquote evil. And the reason I'm paying attention to it, uh, this is back in early 2000s, is because now evil from the 1940s in this is being called good. She had good motives. She had good desires. So what you eat, it moves eventually to the point of saying there is no true evil. It's only your perspective of it. Okay. I'd say Bob and John, going to end with you two. Uh, I think one of the problems is the church was trying to have uh, a situation where it was man-centered and God-centered at the same time. Mm. And I don't, that's mutually exclusive in my mind. It can't be that way. People wanted it that way. Yeah. And I think I still see a lot of that now. We still, I mean, we, even if you're in a good Presbyterian church, folks, <laughs> we always struggle with who is the center of this universe. This is just an expression of a philosophy that made it so that man is the center and supposed to be the center. Um, but truth is, uh, even before this philosophy came out, we have always struggled with who is this is this is inherent to the the fall. Uh, we want to be the center. John. Yeah. Um, in response to the question that Chris was raising, um, if if God is, uh, if we're not going to depend on God, God is not necessary. In fact, He's not desirable. Right. Then you're left with a kind of dilemma. Uh, you know, is there such a thing as objective truth? Is, you know, what's the deal? Well, there is objective truth. There is absolute truth. But God has it. Right. We don't. Right. Apart from him. This yeah. That's why revelation's necessary. Yeah. So, so once you cast that out, you doubt the scriptures and so on, at the same time, looking for... If, if you believe that there's such a thing as neutrality, right? So, but you, you still want absolute objective truth based on what we can discern from your post. Yeah. So Michael Horton uh, would speak of this movement and trajectory, and he said that what was happening is uh, as man is trying to look to the... The revealed things belong to man, the secret things belong to God. But what man is trying to do is look into 
the heavenlies and find out what it is that God alone knows. And he would talk about it as they are sending the, the ladder to peer upon the naked God. Um, Horton talks about this. I actually believe it was Luther who uh, originally coined that. But I know we're out of time. I yeah, we are out of time. I, I, I hope as we get into this, there will be some discussion about how you would describe the causes of this. I think so often we, we think that all of this are good faith discussions between sinful man who can't quite grasp it. But at this period of history that you're describing, there are a lot of malign actors that are taking advantage of the spirit of the age and yep. are taking advantage of the tensions within institutions like the church mm -hmm. to purposely divide and drive us away from truth. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't know how that fits into this the discussions, but... Yeah, I'll be quite frank. I don't think we're going to have time for, for it. But let's, let's close up class, um, get some coffee, and... See you back here in seven minutes.